Today we are, the really good thing happening today is we're going to God's Word together and we're going to uh, open our hearts up to Him as we come into His presence and expect Him to change us. Uh, you know, how many of you today would, would admit that you need some changing? Anybody that has not yet fully arrived, okay? That's why we go to God's Word with humility, with openness. Uh, we're going to find some things in God's Word that rub us wrong, that, that don't sit well with us. That's because there's some rough spots that God is still working out. But we come to Him with that humility and say, God, we come to listen, to be changed in Your presence, and we, we invite Him to do that work of transformation in us. So today we're, we're going to be reading the story of an interesting character here in 2 Samuel. We, if you're new, if you're visiting, we've been going through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. But this guy's name is really fun to try to pronounce. It's Mephibosheth. Everybody say that with me, Mephibosheth. Not bad. Okay, I think you got that tongue twister name. So Mephibosheth, we encounter him first in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. There's just this one preview of this story to come. And maybe we can get that up on the screen so we can see who this guy is. It says that Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel and his nurse took him up and fled and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame and his name was Mephibosheth. The point of that story back in chapter 4 uh, this is at the time, if, if you remember a couple of weeks ago as we were getting into 2 Samuel, it's the end of the Saul and David story and the beginning of the David story. So this is uh, at the time of the death of Saul and Jonathan and his two sons, right around the time that things are happening with Saul's last remaining son, Ishbosheth. But there's this one character, Mephibosheth, who is the grandson of Saul or the son of Jonathan, who was Saul's son, who was David's friend. If you remember back into 1 Samuel, Jonathan and David had a close friendship. And so the point of including this verse in chapter 4 is to let us know that the, the, the lineage of Saul has not completely died out. Okay? There is still one remaining heir, uh, one descendant of Saul still alive, a little... The Bible says a little boy who's crippled in his feet since, since age five named Mephibosheth. I think the point of the, the fact that he's crippled is to kind of also give a clue that he's not going to be a threat to the throne of David. And really, as you look at the story of Mephibosheth, you'll see that same theme drawn out. Now, when you meet a guy like Mephibosheth and you hear these characters, the, even the narrator here in chapter 4, and then as we get to his story in chapter 9, emphasizing the fact that he's lame, that he's crippled, it brings up questions about how does God view disability? I think even that's an interesting word. The word disability is a word that people who are able, apparently, uh, use to label people who are not able. Okay, so that in our human understanding, that's how we think about disability. You know, I'm a dad of a little girl with a disability. Mike is holding her here. She's been waving at the worship team. Uh, her name is Ariel. She was born with Down syndrome. So in our world, we have a label that we assign to someone like Ariel. We call her disabled. How does that jive with what we know of what God says about our humanness, what it is to be created by God in the image and likeness of God, going back to Genesis 1 and 2. Bible, the Bible says that God made male and female in his image. And yet we who are in the category of what we've decided are able, we look at certain people and say disabled. But I think in God's economy and in his world and his mind, there's a different perspective. We're going to see that with the story of Mephibosheth. In fact, 
uh, there are times that I think we would be wiser to go for that place of dependence and inability in order to open ourselves up to God working in our lives. And I'll give you one more example. From the New Testament, you'll see story after story of people who our world would say are disabled, and yet these were the only people who could see Jesus for who he is. Bartimaeus, for example, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we have a blind man in the Gospels who can see who Jesus is more clearly than all these very able people around him who had no clue who Jesus was and missed the point. So I think it's an interesting story. As we look at Mephibosheth, we've been introduced to him now, the son of Jonathan, a descendant of Saul, lame since uh, age five. His legs don't work correctly. Um, His name, Mephibosheth, means from the mouth of shame. And so, you know, I'm not exactly sure how to take that, but literally that's what it would be in Hebrew, from the mouth of shame. It could mean uh, breathing out shame. It could, it could be a, a positive thing or a negative. I'm not exactly sure how to take that. Um, but again, that emphasis on his, the fact that he's lame, not a threat to the Davidic kingdom there. So now we get to chapter 9 as we hear the story of David's interaction with Mephibosheth. To put it in time, in time here, you'd have to look to the verse toward the end of the chapter. Um, so I'll just quote this to you. We'll get to it in a little bit. But verse 12 says, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. So we know that he's not five anymore based on that verse. So th- some time has progressed since chapter 4 when he was age five say maybe at least 15 years. He's probably in his young 20s now, um, thereabouts. We don't have an exact time on the events of chapter 9, but we know some, some time has elapsed. So we're talking about a young man now named Mephibosheth who is, um, he's married and he's a dad himself at this point in the story. So in verse 1 of chapter 9, David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That word kindness in Hebrew is Chesed, got to get that little guttural kind of you know German sound in there. Chesed, and that is a beautiful word that means loving kindness, covenant faithfulness. It's a beautiful word that's often used to describe God's treatment toward us, the loving kindness of God. Really, that idea that Romans brings back up in Romans two, the verse that I quoted earlier about God's kindness leading us to repentance. Of course, that would be in Greek, but that same idea of God's kindness, his grace, his mercy, his loving kindness, that's not based on something that, you know, like if you get a paycheck, you earned it, right? But if you just get a gift out of nowhere that you didn't earn, you didn't deserve, and it just, it overwhelms you because of its lavishness and its disconnection from anything that you've done, that's a picture of that chesed. And David is saying, I want to find someone who's a descendant of Saul that I can give them that kind of kindness, that kind of love that's undeserved just because we know that David is a man after God's own heart. So in that request, David is demonstrating that once again wanting to give kindness and love to a descendant of Saul for the sake of his dear, close friend, Jonathan, who's now gone. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king asked him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Again, I think, I think Ziba, you know, maybe is a little bit nervous. 
being called into the presence of King David. Time has elapsed. It's been maybe 15 years or so since Saul has, has uh, died and David's kingdom and throne has been firmly established. And so if you're uh, aligned with the former king of Israel and you get summoned by the present king of Israel, you may not know what's to come. There may be a little nervousness and apprehension. And so as David is asking Ziba, are there any descendants of Saul still alive? There's probably a couple ideas going in his mind. Well, I hear the king saying he wants to demonstrate kindness, but I'm also a little uneasy to be here right now. And so I want to really underscore and emphasize that in answering your question to the affirmative, yes, there is a son of Jonathan. I want to really highlight the fact that he is lame in both feet. He's not a threat to you or to your kingdom. He's not going to raise up a revolt. Okay, King David, are we okay with that? And so the king said to him in verse 4, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now, put a parenthesis around Ziba's story. He's going to pop up again in chapter 16. So this Ziba character, he's a former servant of Saul. He's uh, bringing information to David about a descendant of Saul who remains alive named Mephibosheth. He's going to come back into the story a little bit later. So now as, as uh, Mephibosheth is summoned, we find now in verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. That would, I imagine, be a painful and difficult process for someone who is lame in both legs. And he comes in demonstrating humility, subservience, paying homage to the current king of Israel, gets down on his face before him to really demonstrate through his posture complete yielding to David. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Once again, probably fear in Mephibosheth's heart. He's been in in a city of refuge for at least 15 years, not having interacted with David. In fact, David doesn't even know he's alive. He knows who he is. Mephibosheth knows his ancestry, where he's come from, the fact that all of his male relatives are now dead, and he's been in hiding. He's heard about this King David who's on the throne, but he doesn't know how the king will respond to him as he's summoned into the king's presence. And so then David, seeing this in Mephibosheth, said in verse 7, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. Again, not not literally that Saul is Mephibosheth's father. It's in the sense of your ancestor, Uh, Saul from whom you descended his father is Jonathan his grandfather is Saul and David is acknowledging that and he's saying in fact David or David is saying to Mephibosheth this kind of kindness the kind of kindness that looks like God's heart this chesed kind of covenant faithfulness and loving kindness it results in restoration so so when you receive this it's not just lip service that I'm giving to you Mephibosheth there is restoration to come. You, the things that your grandfather owned and possessed are going to be restored to you. That's the kind of kindness. It's a practical, active 
life-changing sort of kindness that the king is demonstrating to this crippled man in his presence. And Mephibosheth naturally, as you could imagine, yourself in, these, in this position, he responds in verse 8, he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He's got this self-abasing view of himself that he refers to himself as a dead dog. A dog for an Israelite is the most vile creature you could imagine. Unclean, returning to its own vomit. We find out in the, in the Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, just a disgusting, dirty animal that you would not want to be identified with. And beyond that, not just a dog, a dead dog, Mephibosheth says of himself. And he's questioning, how is the king of Israel showing regard for someone like me? So in Mephibosheth's response, we're seeing a combination of fear for David, respect, honor, reverence for the king, and at the same time, a view of himself that acknowledges that I'm a nobody. There's nothing significant about me. I'm from a family who is despised and destroyed because of the actions of my grandfather. I myself in my own body am nothing special. I've got two broken legs that don't work correctly. So my family identity, my own self, intrinsic self-worth is nothing. And you, the, you are the king. I revere you. I fear you. I honor you. I think that's a good heart posture for us to look to in Mephibosheth as we look to our king. In fact, I'd like to look at a verse from the New Testament that I think picks up the same theme as as we consider how do we see ourselves in light of the king that we serve. And so these verses are from Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you see some of those themes that we've seen here in 2 Samuel 9? Where in recognizing the mercy, the loving kindness of our God who draws us to repentance because of his action, his initiative, it really puts our lives in proper perspective as we see, you know, we didn't deserve that love. It wasn't that God looked at us and said, man, you are a specimen of a human being. You are so awesome that I am going to draw you to myself, receive you as a son or a daughter. No, no quite the contrary. While we were yet sinners, he looked at us in our brokenness, in our lame condition, with our family ancestry, our heritage of sin, and he said, I'm going to love you. I'm going to draw you to myself. That is the kind of king that we serve. And in showing this kindness to Mephibosheth, David once again is demonstrating that he has a heart after God. 
And Mephibosheth is blown away by that kind of grace and love that's poured out on him. So now it, it gets more explicit in the story here of exactly what did this love look like. So far, Mephibosheth is, is, is beginning to become aware that this is actually going to be a good day. You know, when I showed up at the palace today and the king summoned me, I thought this might be the last day of my life. And I'm starting to get a, a clue that the king doesn't want to say off with his head at the end of this meeting. In fact, I'm a little surprised, but it seems like he's making some promises of restoration and he's welcoming me here. He's telling me, do not fear. And so now we hear some more details about what that blessing is going to look like for Mephibosheth. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Again, little, make a little mental note. That story is going to come back up in chapter 16. So Ziba, you know, he, he'd been an important man in Saul's household. He'd been in charge of some things. And now he'd lived for 15 years in safety. And all of a sudden the king is summoning him and saying, Ziba, you've got a new assignment now. You are going to honor you and your sons and your servants are going to honor this disabled grandson of your former master, Saul. That's your new job. You and all the men in your family are now going to work the land. I'm giving everything to Mephibosheth and you've got a job now to honor him because I have chosen to honor him. Now, you know, there's just little clues here in chapter 9 as to what is to come. But it's interesting that while Mephibosheth paid homage to David and fell on his face, we didn't really see that from Ziba. We didn't see Ziba down on his face before King David. We didn't see Ziba uh, even paying homage to the king. You know, he is showing up when summoned, but there's no indication of this subservience, this reverence, this respect for King David. And now we're getting these little narrative clues that as David is saying, you and your sons and your servants are going to serve Mephibosheth, we find out exactly how many sons and servants we're talking about. It's a big family. And so Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. We'll see. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. There in verse 11, Mephibosheth is treated as one of the king's son, sons. It's like he's been adopted into the king's family. He gets all the privileges, all the perks, all the rewards that come along with sonship. A place to live, a home, a place at the table in the king's presence. His needs are provided for. He's nourished and cared for. He's granted all the blessings that come with sonship. What a contrast to those last 15 years of his life 
when he's lived in this low Debar region, unaware of the grace that was awaiting him, not knowing that there was a king who had a plan to demonstrate loving kindness to him. I wonder now, as you, you today are here in this room on a Sunday morning, those of you who are aware of God's loving kindness, and you are Christians, you, you are sons and daughters of the Most High God, can you remember before you found out about God's grace for you, before you found out about Jesus' sacrifice, how many years did you go through unaware of the grace that God had for you, living in fear, living in a state of being crippled by your sin, by the choices in your life, by your own mistakes and, and the mistakes of others that influenced you? How many years did you live not knowing of God's grace? And then can you remember the joy you had on that day when he brought you to himself as a son or a daughter? Maybe, maybe now after many years eating at his table and being in his presence, you've come to take that for granted. I think it's good to pause and go back and think, yeah, what was it like living in that time when I didn't know about God's grace? And what was it like that day when he welcomed me into his kingdom and gave me a place and called me a son or a daughter and to have that joy return that we see in Mephibosheth in this story? The last thing I see there in, in verse 13 uh, a reiteration that Mephibosheth was lame in both of his feet. What a contrast. Now we've got a character here in chapter 9 in Jerusalem, lame in both feet. What a contrast to King David as he entered Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord just a couple chapters earlier, dancing and leaping and wearing this priestly ephod that his wife Michael criticized him for. You know, David, you're making a fool out of yourself in worship. But David in his strength and in God's power, dancing and leaping before the Lord. And now we've got another character in God's presence there in Jerusalem, lame in both legs and yet being received as a son or a son of the king. Just as we are invited to be brought to, to our king as a son or a daughter of the Most High. 1 John 3.1 See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. Let that sink in. You know, Mephibosheth coming to the king's presence, not knowing if his life is going to end today. Maybe in his wildest dreams, he's hoping, I can, maybe I can just be a crippled slave in the palace, but continue to live. And now his expectations totally blown away as the king says, you're going to be like a son eating at my table. And God, because of his love, that he's given to us, calls us children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. There's a difference that happens in our lives. It's not just a point in the past when the king called us a son or a daughter and brought us into the kingdom. There's a whole new perspective going forward that changes our hopes, our dreams, and our identity. And we'll see that in Mephibosheth as we look at the end of his story, a couple more paragraphs in chapter 16 and 19. Jesus says this in John's Gospel, verse or chapter 10, verse 9 through 11. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the king we serve. That's the king who came and made a way for us to be drawn to himself, to be adopted as sons and daughters. And it's not just a mediocre existence that he has in mind for us. Like, I guess I'll muddle through another day. Hopefully I can make it till Friday. He came that we may have life in abundance. And that sounds like what Mephibosheth got in the king's presence there in Jerusalem. A place at the table, adopted as a son. Grace, the restoration of the things that had belonged to his grandfather. And as we come to our king through Jesus, there is restoration of God's original plan that we be in his presence, that we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God that we be amply provided for. And there is a period of time in this life when there is that, that hope that, that we're looking forward to as he comes to restore all things. But in the meantime, we live that abundant life starting today and looking forward to the full culmination of that when the king returns. Our king is returning. So this really uh, is, is the end of the Mephibosheth story, uh, the return of the king. The same thing that we're longing for. So let's look quickly at those last two paragraphs, uh, skipping ahead, interwoven with the story of Mephibosheth and Ziba. There's some other tumultuous times in, in King David's reign, and we'll see some of that next Sunday as well as we look at David's own sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. But skipping ahead to chapter 16, there's a, a little paragraph tying up the Ziba story. So let's look at 2 Samuel 16, verse 1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, hmm, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. So David believes this lie that Ziba is telling him. Ziba is opportunistic. You know, and he's been tending the flocks and vineyards of his new master, Mephibosheth, for a while. And one day he gets an idea. I've got a plan that would put me in, in good graces with the king. Maybe change the circumstances of my life and that of my 15 sons and 20-some servants who are now working for Mephibosheth. And so he harvests some of the bounty of that which belongs to Mephibosheth and he brings it to King David and then makes up a story about Mephibosheth. Oh yeah, that, that lame guy, yeah, he is a problem. He is trying to usurp your throne. David believes the story and he says okay fine everything that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours and now Ziba pays homage remember he didn't do that in chapter 9 but now he does bow down to David because there's been some personal gain 
in his direction. So he, he is lying in order to achieve personal status and gain. So what happens now when David sees Mephibosheth the next time in chapter 19? And this is the last that we hear of Mephibosheth. Verse 24 of chapter 19. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. The point of that is he was in mourning, right? Now we're reading that like, what, what's wrong with you, Mephibosheth? Trim your beard, man. You know, no shave ember is over. But he's been, he's been mourning and grieving the fact that the king is not in Jerusalem. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He knows the story that Ziba told him. And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He, Ziba, has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God, the messenger of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? Again, he is demonstrating the same heart posture he had in chapter 9 when we met him. He's abasing himself before the king. He's recognizing his status, his own intrinsic self-worth. He's revering the king and his kindness, his loving kindness that he's demonstrated. He's acknowledging that and elevating it even as he puts himself in that proper posture of subservience and respect and honor to the king. How does David reply? Seems like David really doesn't know which story to believe at this point. Verse 29, the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all since my lord the king has come safely home. I think really in that verse we, get a, we, we, we know which one's telling the truth and which one's lying. Ziba, who has not bathed, not taken care of his lame feet, not trimmed his beard, all the time that David, David has not been in Jerusalem, all, that the time, all the time that the king has not been on his throne in the kingdom, he's been grieving, mourning, waiting for the return of the king. And now when the king says, okay, fine, I'll give you the status I'll give you the personal gain. I'll give you half of it. Mephibosheth says, what? I don't even care about that stuff anymore. Give it to Ziba. He can take it. All I care about is the return of the king to Jerusalem. When you think back to that day when you first met Jesus and the joy that you had at that moment that you found that maybe, maybe it had been more than 15 years of living unaware of the grace that the king had for you. And the joy that you had on that day of salvation when you found out the good news 
How did that change your future perspective and hopes? Did you, was there a little bit of Zeba still hanging on saying, no, I, I need to go after status and personal gain? And maybe that rears its ugly head in our lives from time to time. But there's a lesson here in this humble, disabled man, Mephibosheth, who could see in ways that many of us cannot about what really matters in life. And his hope and his joy and all of his aspirations were connected to the return of the king. And he's saying that's the only thing that matters. Anything else is empty, meaningless, it won't bring lasting fulfillment. It doesn't bring that abundant life that Jesus talked about in John chapter 9. It's only temporary and fleeting. But when the king returns, that's where there's joy. That's where there's hope. That's what I'm waiting for. And so in this story of a, of a man who, by the mouth of Ziba and the narrator here in 2 Samuel, he's disabled, and yet he can see in a way that we need to develop. Something that we need to have in our daily living, rejecting that path of seeking personal gain and status and instead going all in with excitement and joy for our King Jesus who will return and set all things right. And today maybe you have not yet met that King and you're still living in a city of refuge, trapped in sin, aware of your past, aware of your condition, And there's a king drawing you to himself and saying, my blood was shed for you. There is restoration. There is loving kindness if you will accept this gift that I extend to you. And today is the day to come to the king's table and say, all right, I'm a son. I'm a daughter of the king. I'm changing my priorities from this moment on. I'm going after desiring the, the return of the king above all else. And that gift is for you. So if, if that's the place that you're in, At the end of the service, I'd love a chance to get to pray with you today.